The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, a special greeting to you all this morning. And for those watching online, we're glad you're with us as we look at God's Word. So would you join me as we ask the Lord for help in prayer? Father, I'm acutely aware that right now, We have people coming from a multitude of places. Our hearts are broken. Our backs are weary. Our spirits are weighed down. And so we pray that the fresh wind of your spirit would blow on this body so that we would see the beauty and the majesty of Jesus afresh and that our hearts would be awakened to the glories of Christ. So do that in our midst, we pray, for our joy and for your everlasting glory. Amen. Let me begin this morning with three variations of more or less the same question. Are you willing to boldly stand for the name of Jesus? Are you willing to courageously speak the name of Jesus? And are you ready or prepared to suffer for the name of Jesus? This is the calling of every Christian, that when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, it was a calling to speak, to stand, and to suffer with Christ. And we live in a time where this is needed more than ever. Christians with backbones made of steel. We live in a time where there is no knowledge of good or evil. Consider what Isaiah 5.10 says. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And I can just mention one word and you would all know what I'm talking about. In the realm of gender, we live in a world where we have lost our mind. We have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Romans 1, 25. And so our passage this morning calls all Christians to be ready to stand for Jesus. So last week, Pastor John Nallen used the volleyball analogy that he was setting the ball up for me to spike And and that's kind of the flow of chapters three and four. Based on our heights, I should be the setter. He should be the spiker. But we'll put that aside for a moment. Acts three sets the stage with the lame man's healing and then Peter's sermon of explanation. And what takes place in chapter four is how the authorities respond and then Peter and John on trial. And it's a stunning, stunning passage. Our passage is also the first of many confrontations between the apostles and the religious elite. And there's something really profound taking place. The the Jewish leaders of the day are being removed. 
And the disciples are being established as the true leaders of God's people. They're being upended in this collision course. What was foreshadowed last week is taking place right now. Acts 3.23 said this last week. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. What Peter was saying there is that Jesus is the litmus test for whether you are part of God's new people. And what we see on display in chapter 4 is that the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and all the religious leaders, they don't pass the test. Every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed, Peter said. And what we see taking place is that all of these people not listening to the prophet Jesus. So, there's a power transfer taking place. Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant. He's establishing his new covenant people. And we see that power transfer taking place. The, our passage is a little bit like watching a car crash in slow motion. There's the growing influence of the apostles, and it's going to collide with the religious establishment. There is sort of the, there's Jesus barreling down the tracks, and it's an imminent collision course with the religious leaders. And, and the question we're asking this morning is, what's going to happen And what does that mean for us as God's people? And the main point of our passage this morning is that because Jesus is the litmus test for eternal life, God's people, followers of Christ, cannot but stand and speak the name of Jesus, whatever the cost. Because Jesus is the litmus test. In his name alone is there salvation. So followers of Christ, we have to stand for Jesus and speak the name of Jesus, whatever the cost. And we get a picture of that in Peter and John this morning. And my aim for us this morning is just to help get us ready. When you know that something's coming, you brace yourself for it. We're getting ready for what we are called to do, that we would be ready with joy and trust and faith, having counted the cost to stand boldly for the name of Christ. So our plan this morning is that this passage unfolds into three sections. We're going to look at verses one through four, two responses to Jesus, and then we get the one name that saves in verses five to 12, And then we get one definitive decision in 13 to 22. Two responses, one name that saves, and one definitive decision. So let's look at verse 1. And it says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. So the apostles are teaching. And the religious elite, the religious leaders come upon them. And it says they're putting a stop to it all. Why? Verse 2. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The disciples are disrupting the normal order of things. Who's supposed to be teaching the people? It's to be these religious leaders. And so the disciples are teaching and they're saying, wait, 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 what what are you guys doing? This is unsanctioned teaching. We didn't give you permission to teach here. But not only that, we have to understand who these religious leaders are. The priests are those who take care of and run the temple. The captain of the temple is probably kind of the second highest person in charge. He had the ability to sort of run the whole temple, make arrests. But the Sadducees 
are particularly interesting because they're a members of a sect of Judaism. And they had power. They had a good relationship with Rome. And what they wanted more than every, anything else is let's preserve our power. Let's not rock the boat too much. Let's not undo the status quo. But the Sadducees also had a particular belief system. They did not believe in the resurrection. We see that actually in Acts 23, where Paul uses it as a wedge issue between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It says, Acts 23, verse 8, For the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So not only are these no-name, uneducated people teaching the people, but they're actually preaching the resurrection. We don't even believe in the resurrection, the Sadducees say. How dare they? So, Peter's teaching the people, strike one. He's teaching them about the resurrection of Jesus, strike two. And then he's calling them to trust in Jesus, to participate in the resurrection that Jesus would bring, strike three. So the Sadducees put a stop to this man-made revolution. So the two responses to Jesus, to the preaching of Jesus by Peter, is first, rejection. They arrest the apostles and probably they're going to bring them before the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, and it would have adjourned for the day. So they spend the night in jail. But the second response we see in verse four, it says, but many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about about 5,000. The second response is conversion. Some reject Jesus, but many are converted. And the mention of 5,000 is the climax of Peter's sermon But really, it's just used here as a transition because where Luke wants to focus his attention is on the court case that's going to come. But what we see is that Luke is highlighting 3,000 has swelled and grown to 5,000 in what's taking place. The risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ is seated on his throne. And what is he doing? He's drawing people to himself. And what are we supposed to hear echoed? Acts 1.8. That the Holy Spirit has indwelt the people of God. They're testifying to the person and work of Jesus in Jerusalem. And the people in Jerusalem are believing. So that's what we see. The two responses to Jesus. Now we see, we go to verses 5 through 12 and the one name that saves. So. They tell us about the religious elite in verses 5 and 6. It says, Their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. So imagine just the severity and just the gravity of this situation. Seventy people, all educated, all esteemed, and you're Peter and John, you're standing there on trial. And who are these rulers? Well, the rulers are probably priests from the Sanhedrin. The elders are lay members of the Jewish aristocracy, probably of the Sadducee sect. The scribes are the teachers and students of the law, probably what we'd consider modern-day lawyers. They're interpreting the laws, perhaps some Pharisees. And then we get Annas, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander. John and Alexander, we don't have that much information about. But Annas and Caiaphas... Annas is said to be the high priest, but records show that Caiaphas, his son-in-law, is actually the high priest. But Annas is probably still powerful, working kind of behind the scenes. And so what we have here is this strong political and religious family. And 
What's known about them? They were the ones that oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus. So we have the very people who crucified Jesus now putting Peter and John on trial. And Caiaphas, actually, in John 18, 14, was the one who spoke unknowingly about Jesus. He said that it would be good for one man to die for the people. And what he meant was, let's kill one man and we'll stop the uprising and then we'll have peace. And what actually happened is they killed the one man and by his wounds we have forgiveness of sins. So this is Annas and Caiaphas. And here we get the collision of the elite and the commoners. The scribes represent academia. The the rulers represent state and local government. The chief priests represent the top religious leaders of the day. This would be as intimidating as it could possibly get. It would be like one of us standing before the Supreme Court of the United States or perhaps getting questioned by Congress. And they ask, by what power or by what name did you do this? See that in verse 7. They want to know, what's the source of your power? Where do you get your authority and your accreditation from? We didn't give you permission to preach. We didn't give you permission to teach. Where are you getting this? And here we get the stunning reply from Peter. So look with me at verses 8 to 12. I'm going to read it again for us. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Luke tells us, first off, that Peter is filled with the Spirit. But we already know that Peter was filled with the Spirit at Pentecost. So what does he mean when he says filled with the Holy Spirit? I think he's noting a special endowment or empowering that the Spirit gives in certain moments. And this is a stunning fulfillment of what Jesus had already spoken earlier in Luke's gospel. So listen to Luke 12, 11 and 12. This is Jesus speaking. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, check. Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So what we see now is Jesus equipping of his apostles and then now doing it. The Holy Spirit has filled them so that they know how to defend themselves in that moment. Or Luke 21, 12 to 15. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. What's what's all that mean? Jesus had prepared his disciples for this moment. 
Do not be afraid. Do not think about what you will say. And when some of us think about standing up for Jesus or speaking the name of Jesus or even suffering for Jesus, so much fear fills our hearts. What would I possibly say? I don't have a PhD in theology. And you don't have to worry. The Holy Spirit will equip every single one of his children to boldly, courageously speak the name of Christ. The Spirit of God empowers the people of God to testify to the work of God revealed in the Son of God for the glory of God. Let me repeat that. The Spirit of God will empower the people of God to testify to the work of God revealed in the Son of God for the glory of God. Many of us are lamenting the pressure, the growing pressure that we feel from our culture. And all that that means is that we are going to be given more opportunities to stand up and speak the name of Christ into places where they do not want his name spoken. There's a hint of irony in Peter's reply. He says, are you putting us on trial for a good deed? Is that what you guys are reduced to now? You know, I thought you guys arrested people for criminal activity. We just healed this guy. You're putting us on trial for that? Peter points out five truths about Jesus in his reply in 8 to 12. And I'm going to go through these very quickly. You crucified and rejected Jesus, one. Second, God raised him up from the dead. Number three, Jesus is the one who possesses the power to heal this man. Number four, he has become the cornerstone. And then number five, salvation comes only in the name of Jesus. And at the end of verse nine, there's a little bit of a wordplay going on. At the end of verse nine, it says, by what means this man has been healed? It's the same word for saved. And what he's trying to say is that this lame man has been saved from his physical disabilities to point to the greater reality that Jesus is the one who takes away our spiritual disabilities. Do you guys see it? And then Peter alludes to Psalm 118.22. We actually read it during our worship. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus himself cites this verse in the Gospels, and he does it at the end of the parable about the wicked tenants. And the way that parable unfolds, and Jesus is telling a story with the Pharisees in view, and he says, it's like a man who planted a vineyard and he leased it out to tenants and he went away on a trip and then he sent a servant to say, I'm ready to receive some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they beat that servant and send him away empty-handed. It repeats itself two other times. And finally, the owner of the vineyard says, I'm going to send my son because they will respect my son. Sends his son and what do they do? They kill the son. And then at the end of that parable, what does Jesus conclude? He says, that owner will come, destroy the tenants, give the vineyard to others. And then he quotes Psalm 118. 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What's he saying in that moment? The power transfer is taking place. You builders that rejected this cornerstone, you're being removed. You will be destroyed. And what Peter is saying through the spirit, speaking for Jesus, I believe. He's saying you've made the biggest mistake of your lives. See Jesus. Jesus. 
See him high and exalted. He is the Messiah. This morning, do we have people who are blind to the glories of Christ? Are you at home and you're blind to these glories? We want to call you to not make the biggest mistake of your life. Turn and believe. The very teachers of the law, the elders, the rulers, people who dedicated their entire lives into searching the scriptures missed the one in whom the scriptures were speaking all about. This is stunning. You give your entire life, every good year that you have, to study something and you miss it. And oh, brothers and sisters, may we not miss it this morning. May we see the beauty and the splendor and the majesty of Jesus Christ seated on his throne. I know pressures are coming. I know we feel pulled in a million directions. I know COVID has us angry and frustrated in a million ways. But do not lose sight of our Savior. He is so good and he satisfies our souls. Today, people believe that there are just a million ways they can live. They want to embrace this philosophy or that set of values or these beliefs or this religion. You know, maybe I want a little bit of more therapeutic, moralistic deism mixed with a little progressivism, maybe with a little weekend debauchery and an occasional white lie and sexual promiscuity. Maybe Judaism and Islam and Mormonism and Catholicism, you know, they're all paths to the same direction. And this is not what the Bible teaches. There are only two ways to live. You are either for Christ, and that means you stand for him, you speak his name, and you're willing to suffer for him, or you're against him. If you do not receive Jesus on his terms, and as the Bible reveals, you do not believe in Jesus. We have especially here in America. We have people who want Jesus, but nothing of what he says. Nothing that this book is about. I'll I'll, I'll just take the red letters. I'll, I'll just take the nice things that he said. None of the harsh stuff. They created Jesus that lacks judgment, no wrath, no right or wrong, no absolute truth, no punishment, no commands, and who requires no obedience. Guess what you're worshiping? Not Jesus, you're worshiping yourself. A Jesus that looks exactly like our culture is no Jesus at all. There are only two ways to live. You either take Jesus on his terms, according to his word, or you reject him. And my prayer this morning is that we would recover the full counsel of God. May we be Bible people so that when we get cut, when we get bruised, what bleeds out of us is Bible. Long-suffering, gentle, patient, speaking truth in love. The Bible tells us how we're to handle ourselves in this world. May we be Bible people, Bethlehem. Number three, one definitive decision, 13 to 22. Luke is brilliantly painting this picture of how the tables have turned. Peter and John are on the hot seat. 
And they stand up with spirit-enabled boldness. And what do the religious leaders do? They sit in stunned silence. They're supposed to be the interrogators. And they sit there in stunned silence. Peter stands up and his voice thunders and reverberates. And what does he do? He's quoting scriptures to those who are tasked to teach and interpret the scriptures. And they sit there with mouths silent. I have no idea what to do. The healed man sitting right there. Peter looks like he's running circles around us. And we're so confused. Verse 13 says they're astonished. Don't miss this incredible reversal that's taking place. Verse 14 says, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. This is such good news for us, brothers and sisters. Peter was once the poster child of cowardice. Remember? Peter, servant girl, calling down curses. I don't know him. But by the Spirit, Oh, boldness and courageousness. And that can be true of each and every single one of us this morning. You've not dropped the ball bigger than Peter. And the spirit is the same spirit that was in Peter, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, the same spirit dwelling in us today. Whatever comes, oh, you're ready because you have the very spirit of God living in us. Oh, that we would stand firm. It says, that he had been with Jesus in verse 13. It was likely intended as an insult. He was one of those guys who was with that rabble rouser that we killed. But that is perhaps one of the greatest compliments a Christian could receive today, is it not? You've been with Jesus. You've been with Jesus. You've been with Jesus. Oh, that we would be those who have been with Jesus. Now, The suspense keeps building and a crossroads is approaching. The collision is imminent and the religious leaders have a decision to make. What shall we do with these men? Verse 16, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. The religious leaders are so conflicted. It's absolutely undeniable. It's standing right there. The healed man, 40 years. We we saw him every single day we came in. No one can deny it. But what do they do? They harden their hearts instead of turn in faith. This illustrates the deep and profound need for the Holy Spirit to give life and to give spiritual sight to the blind. And so that's my prayer for so many this morning. Maybe you're watching at home. Maybe you're here in this room. Oh, our prayer is that you would receive spiritual sight to see Jesus. They want it to stop. In verse 17 and 18, they say, But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. We got to stop it. We're losing control. We're losing power. And their pragmatism and self-preservation prevents them from actually reassessing what they think about Jesus. And this leads us to the climactic moment. 
Peter and John make their definitive decision. Here is the crossroads. What will you do? Will you compromise? Okay, we'll just, we'll just speak Jesus maybe in, in rooms. You know, we'll just say we're the J people. We won't say the full word. How about that? You know, we'll just draw the little fish on the, in, in the sand and in the dirt, and we just won't, we won't speak his name. No. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. If ever there was a mic drop moment in the Bible, this is it. We don't care what you do. We can't do anything else. Our very being, our very lives cannot conform to what you're calling us to because we have tasted and seen the beauty and the majesty of Christ. And so this morning, will we compromise our faith? Will we accommodate to the threats Will we minimize and downplay the centrality of Jesus? It's slow and incremental. And and I just get it. At work, you will pay a cost. You absolutely will. At school, you will pay a cost to stand up for what is right. What will we do? The disciples did the latter. Peter and John cannot deny Jesus. They have seen his teaching, seen the fulfillment of his promises, experienced the very power of his miracles, witnessed his death and resurrection, beheld the ascension, felt the indwelling power and presence and joy of the Holy Spirit. And so faithfulness to Jesus demands courage and a willingness to suffer. And that is true of us this morning as well. Both groups see the undeniable nature of what's taken place. And the religious leaders see him standing before them. But the stunning reality is it's like going to the eye doctor where they give you those lenses, right? Is A better or B better? And is B better or C better? Is C better or D better? And, and, and we want the clearest lens so that we could see most clearly. And what, what are these religious elite doing? They're saying, give me the blurriest lens you have. We see the undeniable nature of Jesus and we don't want to recognize it. I don't want to see it because that means I have to change everything about my life that I've missed it and I'd rather see blurry for the rest of my life. Oh, that we would long for clear sight of who Jesus is. Peter and John emerge from this story as the true leaders of the people testifying to what they have seen and heard despite threats and consequences. And so just by way of application, this reminds me of what Pastor John Piper preached on in January. He said, doing the right thing never ruins your life. And what he meant by that is doing the will of God by trusting the grace of God will never ruin your life. So for us this morning, standing up for what is true, what is right and clear from the scriptures, even if there's punishment and threats and intimidation on the other side, it's always, always, always worth it. You will never be put to shame. But I think that's actually one of our greatest fears. If I make this stand, will I get embarrassed? 
Will I feel remorse later? Will I be humiliated? Will I be disgraced and dishonored for standing up for what is right? The the pressure of emotional humiliation is so great is that we would rather be, some of us would rather be beaten than to be embarrassed. We would rather suffer physical harm than to be maligned publicly, to be shamed. We live in a world where, where shame can be so overwhelming, and yet I want to give you seven verses about what the Bible says about shame. Psalm 25, 3, I gotta move quickly. None who wait for you shall be put to shame. Who will be put to shame? They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Psalm 34, 5, those who look to him, are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. If you're keeping your eyes on Jesus, whatever the storm is around you, you will never be put to shame. Luke 9, 26, Jesus spoke this. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. It's a stunning rebuke and warning. Romans 1.16, for I am what? Unashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed. It's the power of God to salvation. Philippians 1.20, this is Paul writing. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Why? Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is what Christian hedonists are. We see heaven, allegiance to Jesus, all the costs that we will pay as gain in Christ. We gain. We gain when we suffer for Jesus. When you stand for Jesus, when you lose everything for Jesus, it's gain, brothers and sisters. It's gain. 2 Timothy 1.8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but do what instead? Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And then lastly, 1 Peter 4.16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but do what instead? Let him glorify God in that name. So as the pressures rise, as the pressure cooker pressurizes, what do we have? we have an opportunity to glorify the name of Jesus. To give glory where glory is due. That's what we get. That's what we get. Obeying Jesus, standing with Jesus, speaking the name of Jesus, testifying to the work and person of Jesus will never result in your shame. Maybe temporary, but not eternal. You will, you will be vindicated by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, and then they give them threats and then they let them go. And, and I could talk a lot more about all the threats, but l- let me just seek to draw out five brief applications for us. First, we want to see Jesus rightly. See the work of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus at work. Search and study the scriptures, the claims of Christ, and the validity of the Bible 
and see for yourself. If you have not gazed upon Jesus this morning, we want you to find the right lens so that you would see him as he is and in all of his glory and that you would believe in him. Second, we want to simulate Jesus. Be like Jesus. The disciples were those who were recognized as people who had been with Jesus. These people had walked with Jesus. They smell like him. They look like him. They talk like him. They read the scriptures like him. And oh, that that would be true of us. That we would look more and more like Jesus in all of the things around us that we would be increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. Third, stand for Jesus. You will need to take a stand, whether at work or at school, in your neighborhood, or with family, or against the cultural winds that blow. The Equality Act. That will be devastating legislation. And what will we do? We will stand. We will stand on the word of God. We will stand by the spirit of God. We will stand for the glory of God, uncompromisingly on his word. Amen? Number four, let's speak the name of Jesus. Speaking the name of Jesus is unpopular. We don't have to be unnecessarily provocative or obnoxious, but let's be polite, let's be upfront, and let's be clear about who it is that we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. You have fresh opportunities in these coming days, brothers and sisters, to speak the name of Jesus. And number five, sing to Jesus. Praise God for Jesus. Praise God for what he is doing. The physical healing was pointing to the greater spiritual healing. That's how the very passage ends in verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people and what were all the people doing. For all the people were praising God for what had happened. We see Jesus at work clearly and we're praising him, not just for one man's healing, but for all of our spiritual healing in Christ. In Jesus, you will never be condemned. You will never be ashamed. You will never end up on the wrong side of redemptive history and you will always be vindicated. And so, we believe that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And so what does Peter's defiant admission reveal in this? That he has seen and tasted of the deep and profound satisfaction in Jesus. Our souls are created to only be filled by the Lord Jesus Christ. All of our longings, all of the things that we want can only ultimately be satisfied by Jesus. And what Peter shows is that he's tasted and he's seen. He's he's witnessed it all. I can't do anything else. You could kill me, but I have to stand. I have to speak and I will even suffer. And may that be true of us this morning, that we have been so satisfied by God. This is not a... Uh, kind of coercive thing 
you know, with a fork. You, you better stand for Jesus. No, we have tasted of the sweetness of the forgiveness of sins, that we have been justified, that he is our shepherd. As we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is our comfort, his rod and his staff. Jesus is our lives. He cares for us. He loves us. He upholds us. Even when we lose a family member, he is the one who holds us. He says, fear not, for I'm with you. Do not be dismayed, for I'm your God. I will strengthen you, and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so we are the people who have tasted and seen that pleasures forevermore are at his right hand. And so may we be those who boldly and courageously stand for the name of Jesus. Speak the name of Jesus and are even willing to suffer for the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I want that to be increasingly true of me and increasingly true of my brothers and sisters this morning. So do that work, for we have many opportunities to get glory for God and get glory for Christ Jesus, no matter what comes no matter the cost, because we know that we have found our greatest heart's satisfaction in you. So we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.